Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Poets and Writers Magazine, Slate.com, New York Review Magazine, The Houston Chronicle, Modern Healthcare Magazine, The New York Times, and I'm going to get started with a story from Newsweek Magazine and its Newsweek.com website. The title is Some Justice for Henrietta Lacks. It was written by Pandora Dewan and published August 25th, 2023. The subtitle to the story is Her Immortal Cells Have Contributed to Several Major Medical Discoveries. 72 years after her death, her family has settled a lawsuit against a biotech company. On August 1st, the family of Henrietta Lacks, a black woman whose cancer cells were harvested without her knowledge and used in wide-ranging medical research over many years, settled a lawsuit against biotech company Thermo Fisher Scientific. Until now, the family has not received any compensation for Lacks' contributions to medicine. Her story was the basis of the bestseller, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, by Rebecca Skloot in a 2017 television movie. August 1st would have been her 103rd birthday. There couldn't have been a more fitting day for her to have justice for her family to have relief, her grandson, Alfred Lacks Carter Jr., told the Associated Press. It was a long fight, over 70 years, and Henrietta Lacks gets her day. In the suit, filed in October 2021, the family said the company had sold lax cells and sought the rights to medical products developed from research using them without the family's permission. In a joint statement, both sides of the case said the terms of the settlement were confidential, adding, Parties are pleased that they were able to find a way to resolve this matter outside of court and will have no further comment. Lax was born on August 1, 1920 in Roanoke, Virginia. At the age of 31, the mother of five visited Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore because of pain in her cervix and bleeding. Doctors discovered a cancerous max in the cervix. Eight months after her diagnosis, on October 4, 1951, Lax died and was buried in an unmarked grave. But that was not the end of her story. Throughout her treatment at the hospital, Lax doctors collected samples of her tumor cells and sent them to a lab for analysis. While most human cells can survive only a few days under lab conditions, lax cells continue to grow and divide indefinitely as if they were immortal. This immortality is common among cancer cells, but lax cells were able to reproduce abnormally fast even for cancer cells. Hers were used to create the first immortal human cell line, dubbed HeLa cells. Over the past seven decades, HeLa cells have contributed to roughly 70,000 scientific studies and helped save millions of lives. But Lax had never given permission for her cells to be used, and it was not until decades later that her family found out what had happened. Here are five of the most significant contributions HeLa cells have made to modern medicine. HPV and other cancers. HeLa cells have been used to advance our understanding of cervical cancer, the disease that killed her. In 1985, German scientists, led by Nobel Prize winner Harold Zurhausen, discovered that HeLa cells contain multiple copies of human papillomavirus 18, a dangerous strain of a virus now known to cause cervical cancer. This discovery paved the way for the development of HPV vaccines over the following decades. HPV vaccines are now widely available and have decreased rates of cervical cancer in young women by over two-thirds. More generally, HeLa cells have been used to develop treatments to slow cancer growth and develop cancer research methods. Development of polio vaccines. 
One of the earliest uses of HeLa cells was the development of polio vaccines. In 1953, researchers from Johns Hopkins Hospital discovered that HeLa cells were an effective tool for growing large amounts of the polio virus to better understand how it infects cells and causes disease. This research was later used in the development of the polio vaccine. Polio vaccines have prevented roughly 1.5 million childhood deaths around the world since 1988, according to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Drugs for HIV-AIDS HeLa cells have been used extensively to study the mechanisms used by the HIV virus to enter human cells. They have also been used to study how different drugs interact with the virus. While there is no widespread cure for this disease, research with HeLa cells has enabled the development of drugs to limit its spread. Aging The DNA inside human cells is capped by a short section of genetic material called a telomere. T-E-L-O-M-E-R-E. These telomeres protect the ends of our chromosomes from becoming tangled or frayed, but they also become slightly shorter with every cell division. As a result, it is thought that telomeres play an important role in cellular aging. HeLa cells were central to the discovery of these structures and the understanding of the biological processes of aging. In 2009, Elizabeth Blackburn, Carol Greider, and Jack Shostak won the Nobel Prize in Physiology for their work in this field. Space travel. HeLa cells have even improved our understanding of the universe, albeit indirectly. Since 1964, HeLa cells have been sent into outer space to study the effects of radiation and space travel on human cells. That was the article titled, Some Justice for Henrietta Lacks. It appeared in Newsweek Magazine's Newsweek.com website, and was published August 25th, 2023. My next reading is an opinion piece. It's titled, Dismantling Racism in Nursing is Key to Achieving Health Equity. This appeared in the August 23rd edition of Modern Health Magazine, and it was written by Michelle Larkin. Across the nation, nurses are demanding a seat at the table to drive meaningful, long-overdue policy changes and improvements to their working conditions and lawmakers and healthcare leaders are paying more attention than ever. Nursing has been considered the most trusted profession by Gallup polling for 20 straight years, but nurses, and particularly nurses of color, frequently lack a supportive and inclusive work environment. Instead, equitable and unsustainable working conditions, coupled with alarming reports of patient and colleague racism, have led to a burned-out, depleted nursing workforce clamoring for change. The recent Supreme Court ruling that will severely restrict race-conscious admissions policies will likely worsen the field's already tenuous pipeline and diversity issues. All nurses deserve to live and work without having to sacrifice their safety, well-being, and health. Their patients, too, deserve high-quality, empathetic, and culturally relevant care. Fortunately, many solutions are available, including providing nurses better wages, more flexible schedules, and access to mental health services. But those alone will not address the scourge of racism that still plagues the profession. It's up to lawmakers, healthcare executives, and nursing leadership to ensure that any solutions put forward are not only driven by nurses' experiences, but also explicitly address the discriminatory policies that have perpetuated unsafe working conditions and systemic racism in the profession. This begins with listening to nurses of color and ensuring their perspectives are driving forces for change. 
Achieving health equity, a future in which everyone has a fair and just opportunity for health and well-being, hinges on this approach and demands that health care leaders step up their own care for caregivers. Over the past three years, nurses have suffered the realities of staffing shortages, poor working conditions, and continued trauma as a result of the pandemic. In this overwhelmingly white workforce, nurses of color have faced the compounding effects of racism. Researchers at Rutgers University found that nurses of color in New Jersey experienced a dual pandemic induced by a toxic combination of fears engendered by COVID-19 and reactions to workplace racism. A recent survey conducted by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Nork Center at the University of Chicago reveals similar trends nationwide. Nurses reported a high prevalence of racism and discrimination in the workplace and in their interactions with both patients and colleagues. These dynamics begin early. More than half of nurses report that there was a culture of racism or discrimination in their nursing school, and less than one-third say they were taught about racial bias or systemic racism in healthcare at their schools. The pervasive racism in the system affects patients, too. Study after study shows how systemic racism causes patients of color to receive subpar care. It doesn't have to be this way. The nursing field must reckon with its own history of racism. Many nursing associations, including the American Nurses Association, have begun to do this work. In 2021, the ANA, together with the National Association of Hispanic Nurses, the National Black Nurses Association, and the National Coalition of Ethnic Minority Nurse Associations launched a commission to examine how racism affects nurses, patients, and healthcare systems and to motivate all nurses to confront systemic and individual racism. Together, they have issued a foundational report on racism in nursing and hold regular forums for nurses to discuss how racism shows up in their profession and what skills can help them confront the issue. As the survey findings suggest, however, the work to dismantle racism must begin as early as nursing school. For example, the history taught in nursing schools often omits the achievements of groundbreaking nurses such as Mary Seacole, a Jamaican nurse who cared for fallen soldiers in the Crimean War, and the Black Angels, a group of black nurses who treated tuberculosis patients in New York in the mid-1900s. Instead, nursing history often focuses on white nurses like Florence Nightingale, who, while she made many contributions to what we now know as modern-day nursing, also supported British colonialism and justified the genocide of indigenous populations as a necessary sacrifice. Anti-discrimination policies are only one piece of the puzzle to address nurse shortages and burnout. Healthcare leaders must take complementary steps that will benefit all nurses by ensuring safe working conditions, grief and mental health support, fair wages, and flexible schedules. Policymakers, too, should remove regulatory and other barriers that keep nurses from practicing at the top of their education and training. Nurses who feel happy and supported in their jobs will be able to provide even better care, improving the system for all. The complex and intersecting crises in nursing are not insurmountable. With the moral will to dismantle systemic racism, leaders in government, education in hospitals and health systems can take these and many other steps to ensure everyone, nurses and patients alike, has an equal chance at achieving their best possible health and well-being. That was an opinion piece from Modern Healthcare magazine titled, Dismantling Racism in Nursing is Key to Achieving Health Equity. It was written by Michelle Larkin 
and published August 23, 2023. My next reading is one of several stories being produced these days in recognition of the 50th anniversary of the creation of hip hop music. The title of this story is called Knowledge of Self. How a key phrase from Islam became a pillar of hip hop. It appeared in the Houston Chronicles Cron.com website and was written by Saud Abdul Kabir and published August 4, 2023. I was nine years old when Eric B and Rakim's Paid in Full dropped. I have vivid memories of the bass-laden track booming out of car stereos and hearing it on black radio like Kiss FM's Top 8 at 8 p.m. countdown. On the track, move the crowd. Rakim, also known as the God MC, rhymes, "All praises due to Allah, and that's a blessing." Growing up as a black Muslim in the Crown Heights neighborhood of Brooklyn, I was already familiar with the phrase. Like all Muslims, I learned to say it during my daily prayers and as an expression of gratitude. But when Rakim laced these words into the lyrics of what ultimately became a popular song, he affirmed what I was seeing around me in my Brooklyn community. That Islam and Muslims were prominent features of Black life. Rakim dropped another familiar phrase in the song, "Knowledge of Self." When Rakim extols the benefits of knowledge of self to himself as an MC and a human being, he is drawing a philosophy that has been critical to Black Islam, a term I use to describe the different forms of Islamic belief and practice found in Black America. Knowledge of self comes from this tradition, beginning roughly a century ago, which has become known for advancing Black consciousness, resistance, and redemption. Knowledge of self is an ethical pursuit to understand one's place in and relationship to the world in order to positively change it. In my 2016 book, Muslim Cool: Race, Religion, and Hip Hop in the United States, I demonstrate how knowledge of self is fundamental to hip hop. It is often described as hip hop's fifth element. The others being DJing, MCing or rhyming, graffiti or writing, and dance from b-boying to pop-locking. While the phrase of the consciousness that it represents have been mentioned in too many songs to count, from Public Enemy's "Fight the Power" to Lauryn Hill's "Doo-Wop" and to Lee Quelly's "K.O.S.," history shows the term has been a part of Islamic literature for nearly a millennium. For example, the first chapter of the celebrated 12th-century Islamic scholar Abu Hamid al-Ghazali's famous text, *The Alchemy of Happiness*, is titled *The Knowledge of Self*. In my book, I make the case that Islam, specifically Black Islam, gave hip-hop knowledge of self. Rakim's reference to knowledge of self's being an actual fact is a nod to the actual facts of the lost-found Muslim lessons. The catechism taught by Master W. D. Farrakh Muhammad, who founded the Nation of Islam on July 4, 1930, Master Farrakh taught these lessons to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who would become the religious movement's leader. These lessons are fundamental to the way that the Nation of Islam understands the world and the role of Black people in it. The lessons are also studied by the Nation of Gods and Earths, a related spiritual path of which Rakim is a member. Knowledge of self comes to hip hop through these lessons. Rakim was not alone. During the golden age of hip hop, a period from about the mid 1980s through the mid 1990s, rappers influenced by Black Islam steadily proclaimed their knowledge of self in their music. Big Daddy Kane declared, "There's no pork on my fork," an acknowledgment of the Islamic injunction against the consumption of swine. The poor righteous teachers gave the Arabic greeting as "Assalamu alaikum" with the dome of Harlem's Masjid Malcolm Shabazz in the background and the music video for "Rock This Funky Joint."
And from Brooklyn to the California Bay, acclaimed MCs like Guru and local acts were rhyming about praying to the East, a reference to the Muslim practice. Long before rappers spoke of knowledge of self in the 1980s, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad expounded on the term in his book, Message to the Black Man in America, released in 1965 at the height of the civil rights movement. In it, he emphasized black self-reliance, with knowledge of self being a key component. The so-called Negroes must be taught and given Islam, Muhammad wrote. Why Islam? Islam because it teaches first the knowledge of self. It gives us the knowledge of our own. Then and only then are we able to understand that which surrounds us. This kind of thinking produces an industrious people who are self-independent. In some ways, it comes as little surprise that a term promulgated by a fierce advocate of self-reliance in the mid-1960s would be so widely embraced by hip-hop shortly after it was born as a counterculture in the early 1970s. When black Islam helped hip-hop culture cultivate knowledge of self, it created an aspiration, arguably unique for contemporary popular music as a whole, to not just rhyme about it or write graffiti about it and so on, but to apply it in real life. As a result, knowledge of self became hip-hop's consciousness, emphasizing an awareness of injustice and the imperative to address it through both personal and social transformation. Critically, this consciousness, while informed by black Islam, is embraced by hip-hop community members of all stripes. The consciousness led to different forms of hip-hop-based activism. Songs against gun violence like the Stop the Violence Movement Self-Destruction and We're All in the Same Gang by the West Coast All-Stars. Self-destruction opens, not inconsequentially, with a sample of a speech by Malcolm X, the one-time spokesman for the Nation of Islam and icon of black Islam. The consciousness also contributed to the formation in 2004 of the National Hip-Hop Political Convention, which set the stage for other, albeit less radical and comprehensive engagements with politics by the hip-hop generation like the Vote or Die campaign and the push for Obama in 2008. Nearly 10 years later, this consciousness was on display at the 2017 Grammy performance by A Tribe Called Quest, Busta Rhymes, and Consequence that was an open call to resist in the Trump era. This consciousness also continues to inspire the many organizations like Kaumba Links and the Inner City Muslim Action Network in Chicago that use hip-hop as a form of arts-based activism for youth. And of course, it remains in the music. On the track Family Feud, Jay-Z, like Rakim, praises God, but this time in Arabic, Alhamdulillah. Mumu Fresh questions others' knowledge of self with the line, Good morning, sunshine. Welcome to reality. I tried to wake you, but you were sleeping so peacefully in your fallacy. Buster Rhymes dropped Extinction Level Event 2, The Wrath of God, full of warnings and prophecies. And in a freestyle viewed around the world, Black Thought rhymes about the wisdom he got at the Majid. This consciousness is so entwined with music that Kendrick Lamar's All Right became a Black Lives Matter movement anthem. Like hip-hop, this consciousness operates globally. Take, for example, Iraq-Canadian Narsi, Cape Town's Youngster CPT, Cuban hip-hop artist Roby El Nino, and UK's Any, whose works track their own journey for knowledge of self. Things have changed since Rakim dropped Move the Crowd in 1987. Gentrification is pushing my community out of Brooklyn, and Islam and Muslims are more known and subject to the state and interpersonal violence of anti-Muslim racism. Yet hip-hop still affirms what I see around me. Knowledge of self is as vital as ever. 
There are several pictures that go along with this story. One shows Chuck D. and Flavor Flav performing as part of the group Public Enemy. The next is a picture of Lauren Hill. Then there is a photograph of Elijah Muhammad. The caption reads, Elijah Muhammad led the Nation of Islam from 1934 until his death in 1975. It shows them standing behind a podium and there are about seven microphones pointed at him and he has on his suit with his bow tie and jeweled kufi. The next is a photograph of the members of the group Poor Righteous Teachers. There's a photograph of Muhammad Ali reading Elijah Muhammad's book, The Message to the Black Man in America. And there's a picture of Malcolm X standing at a podium speaking. That was the article titled, Knowledge of Self, How a Key Phrase from Islam Became a Pillar of Hip-Hop. It was written by Suad Abdul-Kabir and appeared in the Houston Chronicles Cron.com website on August 4th, 2023. My next reading is a book review. It's from the New York Review magazine and it's August 17th, 2023 edition. The title of the article is called Africa, the Center of History, written by Adam Gitachu. The name of the book being reviewed is Born in Blackness, Africa and Africans, the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War by Howard W. French. This is a long book review, and I will be reading the first half of it. W.E.B. Du Bois, the African-American sociologist and historian and a co-founder of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, was fond of the Latin phrase, Semper Novi Quid Ex Africa, out of Africa always something new. Although of Greek origin, the phrase is most often associated with the Roman philosopher Pliny the Elder, who included it in his Natural History, written in 77 of the Common Era. For Pliny, Africa was a place of strange and unusual creatures. For Du Bois, however, the continent was most remarkable for its contributions to human development. It is probable that out of Africa came the first civilizations of the world, he insisted. From his publication of The Negro in 1915 until his death in 1963 in Ghana, where he was at work on an ambitious Encyclopedia Africana, he wrote against the conception of Africa as what Hegel called the place without history. Du Bois' project was twofold. He first sought to show that Africa did indeed have a history. From its dark and more remote forest vastness came the first welding of iron, and we know that agriculture and trade flourished there when Europe was a wilderness, he wrote. Second, he aimed to explain how African achievements had been erased from the processes that produced European global dominance. The depiction of Africa as the place without history was the product rather than the cause of the enslavement and forced migration of over 12 million Africans, followed by the colonial conquest of the continent. In the course of this historical drama, he argued, color became in the world's thought synonymous with inferiority. Negro lost its capitalization, and Africa was another name for bestiality and barbarism. This twofold pursuit was not unique to Du Bois. Beginning in the 19th century, African-American intellectuals, understanding that their political fates were tied to depictions of Africa, had written counter-histories. 
They did so in fiction and poetry, from Pauline Hopkins of One Blood, 1902, to County Cullen's Heritage, 1925. By repurposing the colonial genre of the travel narrative, as in Martin Delaney's official report of the Niger Valley Exploring Party, 1861, and Islanda Robson's African Journey, 1945. And by covering political developments on the continent in newspapers like the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier, scholarly publications like the Journal of Negro History, founded in 1916 by the pioneering African American historian Carter G. Whitson, and black institutions like Howard University incubated the field of African studies. The first issue of the journal carried an article entitled "The Mind of the African Negro as Reflected in Its Proverbs." Which made the case that a deeper and more extensive reading of folk literatures strengthens our belief in the ancient saying, "Out of Africa there is always something new." Howard French's *Born in Blackness: Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War* continues this intellectual tradition. French, whose essays often appear in these pages, is the former New York Times bureau chief for West and Central Africa, as well as the Caribbean and Central America. In *Born in Blackness*, he draws on his travels throughout the African continent, the wider Atlantic world, and on extensive research in the primary sources and secondary literature to reconstruct Africa's place in history. Unlike Du Bois. Who in the World in Africa, written in 1947, argues that ancient Egypt is the African origin of human civilization? French starts in the 15th century when new connections were formed among Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Americas. While Europeans are often the central actors in this story, Born in Blackness casts Africans on both sides of the Atlantic as the prime movers. Before the Atlantic slave trade. African societies shaped global commercial networks centered on gold and enjoyed political and economic parity with other states. In the age of the slave trade, African labor was the fundamental importance to the development of settler societies in the Americas and the broader global economy. Then, from brutal conditions of chattel slavery, Africans universalized the idea of human emancipation, recast blackness as a political identity. And laid the foundations for Pan-Africanism. French writes not only to correct the historical record, but to urge readers to understand how their world has been made by Africa's contributions. Born in Blackness is therefore an entry into a larger debate about how to reckon with the past. In the United States, conflicts over the nation's fractious history, including debates about Confederate statues, the New York Times 1619 project, and school curriculums. Have reached a frenzied pitch. French seeks to provoke a full-scale reconsideration of who we are as Americans. He writes in the book's closing pages, "I believe that the sooner denial about the large and fundamental role that slavery played in creating American power and prosperity is put to definitive rest, the better Americans as a people will come to understand both themselves and their country's true place in world history." Yet the history recounted in *Born in Blackness* contains lessons for Africa and Europe as well. French addresses Americans, but his book views the history of slavery and race here as one episode in a global drama. In this way, *Born in Blackness* counters the domestic perspective of the 1619 Project. What launches his story is not the settlement of the United States and the arrival of Africans on these shores. But the fateful encounters between Portuguese traders and African empires. 
Rather than concentrating on the peculiar institution of American slavery, French tracks the development of plantation slavery from the island of Sao Tome to the Caribbean and Brazil before he turns to the United States. A focus on our own national myths obscures slavery's international scale. It offers too simple an answer to the question, what do we want history to do for us now? For Du Bois and his generation, historical narratives vindicating black agency mobilized the past in service of revolution, drawing a direct line from what was before to an emancipation that will be. Our own history wars cannot offer such assurances. But by presenting Africa's place in the world from the 15th century to the 20th in unflinching, extraordinary detail, Born in Blackness offers a guide to how to answer this question. The 15th century was the age of discovery. In our standard account of the period, Africa was first and foremost a roadblock to Europeans searching for easy access to the spices and silks of Asia, as in Christopher Columbus's search for a westward path to the east or the circumnavigations of Bartholomew Diaz and Vasco da Gama. Only later, according to this line of thinking, did Africa become important as the supplier of the enslaved women and men whose labor sustained the plantation economies of the New World. Not so, says French. The first impetus for the age of discovery was not Europe's yearning for ties with Asia, he writes, as so many of us have been taught in grade school, but rather its centuries-old desire to forge trading ties with legendarily rich black societies hidden away somewhere in the heart of darkness West Africa. The history of Iberian explorers begins on the west coast of Africa. European interest in the Americas and Asia was only a later development. To understand why Portugal's sites were set on West Africa, which was referred to as the New World before 1492, French again shakes up the conventional story. Rather than starting with the forces driving European exploration, he begins with the empires of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai. Ancient West African cities like Djenne were part of far-reaching trade routes. For instance, archaeological digs have uncovered glass beads from there as far away as Han, China. The region's prominence was based on gold. In the 10th century, the Ghana Empire came to be known as the country of gold throughout the Mediterranean because it controlled the entry points where gold from the south was traded for salt and other essential goods from the north. Mali, which succeeded Ghana in the 13th century, controlled the nexus of three important river valleys, the Senegal, the Gambia, and the Niger, and had by the 14th century an estimated population of 50 million. Like its predecessor and its successor, the Songhai, the Mali Empire built its power on trade in gold and slaves, whom it used as laborers but also sold in North Africa. In 1324, Mansa Musa, the ruler of Mali, arrived in Cairo with a spectacle of largesse, cementing Mali's association with gold and slavery. Musa traveled with a delegation of 60,000 people, including 12,000 slaves, each of whom reputedly carried a fan made of four pounds of gold. His camels and horses also carried hundreds of pounds of gold dust. As impressive as the gold was, it was the number of slaves, French writes, that may have reinforced sub-Saharan Africa's reputation throughout the Near East as an inexhaustible source of black bondsmen and women. 
Here, French like Dubois, before him, seeks to refute the idea that first Arabs, then Europeans, rather than Africans, brought the continent into the global commercial networks. But even as he shares in this vindicating project, French has a different aim. He argues that if we recognize the complex state formations and global connections that characterized West Africa in the 15th century, we can better understand the encounter between Europe and Africa. The inequalities we are so familiar with today were not preordained, French insists. They were produced through exploitation and extraction as old as the modern world. I'm going to end this article there. That is the first half of the article titled Africa, the Center of History, which is a book review of the book Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, which was written by Howard W. French. This book review appeared in the New York Review magazine and it's August 17th, 2023 edition. My next story is an obituary. The title is Clarence Avant, Mighty Engine Behind Black Superstars Dies at 92. This appeared in the New York Times newspaper on August 14th, 2023. It was written by Neil Genslinger. Clarence Avant, a record executive who shaped the careers not only of Bill Withers, Whitney Houston, Janet Jackson, and other black singers, but also of politicians, actors, and sports figures, exerting so much influence that a 2019 documentary about him was simply called The Black Godfather, died on Sunday, August 13th, at his home in Los Angeles. He was 92. Mr. Avant, capital A-V-A-N-T, Born in a segregated hospital in North Carolina and educated only through the ninth grade, moved easily in the high-powered world of entertainment, helping to establish the idea that black culture and consumers were forces to be reckoned with. He started out managing a nightclub in Newark in the late 1950s and moved on to representing some of the artists he met there. Joe Glazer, a high-powered agent who handled Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and many other top acts, took Mr. Avant under his wing. Perhaps the documentary suggested Mr. Glazer, who was white, thought it would be advantageous to have a black man representing some of his black clients. In any case, Mr. Avant was soon handling artists including the jazz organist Jimmy Smith and traveling in rarefied circles. Not all of his clients were black. He said Mr. Glazer sent him to Los Angeles in 1964 with the Argentine pianist Lalo Schifrin, who was then working with Dizzy Gillespie to try to get Mr. Schifrin started on a career composing for film and television. Though he knew nothing about the movie business, Mr. Avant worked his brand of magic on the West Coast. Mr. Schifrin has to date been nominated for six Oscars. In 1969, Mr. Avant formed Sussex Records. He said the name was his combination of the two things people want more than anything else, success and sex which lasted only about half a decade, but released, among other records, Mr. Withers' early albums. Clarence made some great choices musically, Mr. Withers, who died in 2020, said in the documentary. Lean on Me, Mr. Withers' only Billboard number one hit, was not my choice for a single. Later in the 1970s, Mr. Avant found Taboo Records, and for a time in the 1990s, he was chairman of Motown. He also helped Jim Brown, the football player, build an acting career, negotiated an endorsement deal for Hank Aaron, the Hall of Fame baseball player, as well as supporting the political careers of Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. 
One of the things he understands is there are different kinds of power, Mr. Obama said in the documentary. There's the power that needs the spotlight, but there's also the power that comes from being behind the scenes. In 2013, accepting the Entrepreneur Award at the BET Honors, one of many he received in his career, Mr. Avant summed himself up. I can't make speeches, he told the crowd while clutching his trophy. That's not my life. I make deals. Clarence Alexander Avant was born on February 25, 1931 in Greensboro, North Carolina, to Gertrude Avant Woods, a domestic worker. In the documentary, he said his mother was not married to his father, Phoenix Jarrell, whom he barely knew. He grew up in Climax, North Carolina, in difficult circumstances and stayed in school only through the ninth grade. We were poor, he said in the film. I'm talking about poor, poor, poor. We had chicken feet soup. Racism was omnipresent, and the Ku Klux Klan loomed large. My mother would tell us, if you hear a car coming, run and hide. Lay down flat, he said. He grew up with a stepfather, Eddie Woods, who was abusive. He said he left home when he was a teenager after his attempt to kill the man by putting rat poisoning in his food failed. He went to live with an aunt in Summit, New Jersey. For a time, he held a low-level job at Martindale Hubble, publisher of a law directory. In his 20s, he started working at a Newark nightclub that featured black musicians. That was his introduction to the entertainment business, and he proved a natural. I think Clarence exemplifies a certain cool, Mr. Obama said in the documentary, a certain level of street smarts and savvy that allowed him to move into worlds that nobody had prepared him for and say, I can figure this out. As his career representing entertainers began to flourish, Mr. Avant met Jacqueline Gray, a model. They married in 1967, and as the couple prospered, Miss Avant became noted for her philanthropic work. In December 2021, a man burglarizing the Avant's home, Ariel Maynard, shot and killed her. He pleaded guilty to multiple charges the next year and was sentenced to life in prison. In the documentary, friends remarked on their long marriage, somewhat unusual in the entertainment world. They still look like they got that wedding cake on their feet, the actor Jamie Foxx said, like they just walked out of a soul wedding cake. Mr. Avant's daughter, Nicole Avant, said in a phone interview that after the tragedy, her father made a conscious effort to press on. Music was, I think, the life-saving force for him, she said, especially that of Ellington, Frank Sinatra, and other artists from his youth. His mood changed when the music came on. At about the same time he was getting ready to marry Jacqueline, Mr. Avant was growing more vocal about racial matters. A 1967 article in the Pittsburgh Courier quoted a strongly worded letter he had written to the management of WLIB, a radio station in New York that was aimed at a black audience, but at the time was white-owned. Is your station managed by Negroes, he wrote? And I am not referring to Negro disc jockeys. I think radio stations whose programs are supposed to appeal to the so-called Negro market, he added, should at least be staffed by Negro personnel. He was also becoming active politically. He supported the early campaigns of Andrew Young, who made an unsuccessful run for a Georgia congressional seat in 1970 and a successful one two years later. It was Mr. Young who connected Mr. Avant to Hank Aaron when he was about to break Babe Ruth's career home run record in 1974. Clarence called me up and said, Andy, do you know Hank Aaron? Mr. Young recalled in the documentary, which was directed by Reginald Hutland, I said, yeah, he lives around the corner. He said, if he's about to break Babe Ruth's record, he's supposed to be making some money. Mr. Avant wanted to help Mr. Aaron secure some endorsement deals. 
Will you tell him that I'm not crazy and I'm going to call him? Mr. Avant asked Mr. Young. I said, well, I can't vouch for you're not being crazy, Mr. Young said, but I'll tell him you've been very helpful to me. It was fraught territory. Mr. Aaron was receiving death threats over the prospect that he would break a hallowed record set by a white player. Mr. Avant, though, according to the documentary, marched into the office of the president of Coca-Cola and told him, in unprintably blunt language, that black people drink Coke. Mr. Avant's guidance helped Mr. Aaron secure a substantial deal from Coke and otherwise market himself, which fueled his later charitable endeavors. Henry Aaron would not be Henry Aaron if it were not for Clarence Avant. Mr. Aaron, who died in 2021, said in the film. Mr. Avant also helped other athletes, including Jim Brown, as he transitioned from football into acting in the 1960s. Interviewed for the documentary, Mr. Brown, one of the biggest black stars of the 1960s and 70s, had a hard time pinning down what Mr. Avant did. Not an uncommon thing among those who knew and worked for Mr. Avant. You have this guy called Clarence Avant that everybody's talking about. But nobody seems to understand just what his official title was, Mr. Brown, who died in May, said, recalling their early meetings. I couldn't tell you now exactly what he was. Was he an agent, a manager, a lawyer? Mr. Avant had rocky times in the mid-1970s when the Sussex label went bankrupt in KAGB-FM, a radio station he had bought, making it one of the first black-owned stations in the Los Angeles area, floundered. But he said friends were always his most important asset, and some of them helped him get back on his feet. Taboo Records, which Mr. Avant founded in 1975, released records by the SOS band, Sherelle, and others. In addition to his daughter, who was a producer of The Black Godfather, Mr. Avant is survived by a son, Alexander, and a sister, Anne Woods. The Avant home was always abuzz with A-list visitors. Nicole Levant recalled a day when she was 12 that she and a friend got into trouble at school. The friend's mother driving Nicole home was fuming until she saw Harry Belafonte walking out of the Levant's house. Is that Harry Belafonte? The woman asked her. I said, yeah. How do you know Harry Belafonte? Not realizing he was anyone other than a friend who had come around to visit his parents from time to time. Miss Levant, who served as ambassador to the Bahamas during the Obama administration, said that Mr. Belafonte and others who would gather at the Yvonne home were serious about breaking down racial barriers in the entertainment world and in society in general. They knew that they were on a mission, she said. That was the obituary. Clarence Avant, mighty engine behind black superstars, dies at 92. It was published August 14, 2023, in the New York Times newspaper. Next is a story about housing that has its origins in the Kansas City metropolitan area. The title is The Man Who Made Suburbs White. It was written by Mark Dent and published August 16, 2023 at the website Slate.com. The subtitle to this article is J.C. Nichols Pioneered Racial Covenants in Kansas City's Surrounding Enclaves. The country is still grappling with them. This essay is adapted from Kingdom Quarterback, a book about how American cities grew, how they failed, how they are changing, and why football matters so much to them, told through the narrative of Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. Six months ago, on the day Kansas City, Missouri, threw a Super Bowl parade for the National Football League champion Chiefs, not everyone was focused on superstar quarterback Patrick Mahomes. 
Legislators from the Kansas City area and across Kansas held a hearing at the State House related to another figure who left a mark on not just the heart of America, but all of it. J.C. Nichols, one of the most influential American developers in the early 20th century. The lawmakers considered a bill that offered jurisdictions in the state an opportunity to remove racial housing covenants, a tool Nichols popularized and which, incredibly, were in many places still visible on housing documents. The covenants had been illegal for decades but remained as a vestige of the past and helped explain why so many communities effectively excluded racial minorities in the present. Representative Rui Zhu, capital R-U-I, capital X-U, a Kansas City area lawmaker who lives in a Nichols-built suburb, later said he could still see the covenant's remnants throughout his district, which includes communities that are around 90% white. We are still wrestling with the effects of policies from decades and centuries ago, Zhu told his fellow legislators. When my co-author and I set out to write a book about Mahomes and the transformation of Kansas City, we ended up writing nearly as much about Nichols a forgotten figure, at least outside of Kansas City, who developed or popularized many of the legal and aesthetic innovations that made much of America's suburbia what it is today, attractive, exclusive, and mostly segregated. His ideas are visible nationwide, residing in meticulously planned cul-de-sacs, in spacious lawns, and in every pitch battle over efforts to build more inclusive neighborhoods. Today, for most Americans, Nichols is an anonymous figure. But as a U.S. senator opined on the floor of the Capitol decades ago, there are few cities of large size in the United States that in one way or another have not felt his genius. In 1999, Builder magazine listed Nichols third when it counted down 100 of the most important figures in American housing during the 20th century, only behind FDR and Henry Ford. When Nichols started planning communities in the early 1900s, developers were largely derided as curbstoners. They bought property, divided it into lots, threw up curbstones, and moved on, oblivious to the future well-being of home buyers. A transformative idea dawned on Nichols, stringent restrictions. Also known as covenants, they'd existed for decades, typically as an agreement between a developer and a buyer on a single lot proving unpopular to Americans who didn't want to be controlled on their own property. But Nichols sensed he could foster long-term stability, which would be profitable for him and for homeowners. He initiated restrictions on entire neighborhoods, placing them on the land before any lots were sold, a private zoning system before municipal zoning was widespread. He's credited as the first developer to emphasize the covenants for middle-class areas and to make them self-renew after periods of 25 to 40 years, unless the majority of residents objected, ensuring they'd essentially last forever. For enforcement, he set up homeowners associations. Nichols' restrictions started with a few sentences on neighborhood plat documents and eventually ran for a few pages. They set minimum prices for home construction, mandated single-family housing and banned apartments, required a specific amount of space on the fronts and sides of homes, and regulated routine housing elements like chimneys, trellises, windows, vestibules, and porches. There were also racial restrictions that barred black residents from owning or renting homes. An early billboard for Nichols Country Club District development described the area as 1,000 acres restricted. Newspaper ads claimed that Nichols' neighborhoods blocked all undesirable encroachments and promised that complete uniformity is here assured. 
Uniformity proved to be a hell of a business for Nichols. And we find that the more restrictions we can put on, he wrote in a 1923 Good Housekeeping essay, the more cheerfully is the land bought. Nobody had seen a swath of suburbia as vast as its neighborhoods, which comprised the country club district. By the 1940s, there were more than a dozen contiguous upper-class and middle-class subdivisions filled with bubbling fountains, tree-lined vistas, and cul-de-sacs, providing homes for as many as 50,000 people across two states. Many subdivisions were buffered by parks and golf courses, and they were all tied together with restrictive covenants. It was the American's domestic ideal, opined a visitor from the New Republic. Nichols wasn't the only builder applying covenants. Their use accelerated after 1910, imposing segregation and strict land development rules across the country. But he was their most prominent proselytizer, promoting their spread through speeches and articles and in leadership roles with national real estate organizations. Nichols' covenants in Sunset Hill and Mission Hills, two of his poshest neighborhoods, were said by his company to have been copied in more than 50 cities. In the 1930s, the Nichols Way received a boost from the federal government. As the Great Depression wore on, he and other renowned developers began pushing for an organization to stabilize the housing industry. One result was the Federal Housing Administration, a New Deal agency that became infamous for systematically refusing to insure mortgages in black and lower income neighborhoods and subsidizing a white exodus to the suburbs. Developers seeking FHA insurance followed a manual that recommended that restrictive covenants be set for entire subdivisions before homes were built and advised using them to maintain single-family home uniformity and to prohibit the occupancy of properties except by the race for which they are intended. It also included standards for oddly specific details like the amount of space on the sides of homes. Restrictive covenants, the manual noted, are apt to prove more effective than a zoning ordinance in providing protection from adverse influences. To Kevin Fox Gotham, a professor of sociology at Tulane University and author of Race, Real Estate, and Uneven Development, it seemed as if the FHA had adopted Nichols' methods and practices almost verbatim. Or as Sarah Stevens, associate professor at the University of British Columbia, wrote in a Princeton dissertation that led to her book, Developing Expertise, Architecture, Real Estate, and Metropolitan America, Nichols' innovations and deed restrictions created the legal foundations for the permanence of the suburban pattern. The result was that many suburbs in the outer edges of cities across America developed with Nichols' DNA, and they still have it today. America's suburbs have diversified, but they're still heavily segregated. As the Brookings Institution put it in 2020, White people and people of color largely do not live in the same suburbs. Although racial covenants are illegal, other self-renewing restrictions, the zealous attention to land use and building standards propagated by Nichols, remain on the books in many subdivisions across the United States, with many more added to new subdivisions in recent years, helping maintain segregation by race and income. Roughly 20% of Americans live in an area governed by a homeowners association that enforces restrictive covenants, and Stephen Miller, a professor at the University of Idaho College of Law, who has studied housing covenants, told me most covenants contain a standard from the Nichols Playbook, a requirement that the lots be used for a single-family dwelling unit. This particular restriction acts as an extra barrier that overrides municipal zoning codes. 
Even as Americans say they support more low-income housing and want to live in ethnically diverse and walkable communities, the restrictive covenants contribute to the inflated home values that have turned many middle-class neighborhoods into affluent enclaves. Not to mention places where you can't walk to stores, restaurants, or offices, and where even if they wanted to, developers cannot build multifamily buildings. The reason why that happened in suburban environments isn't just about zoning, Miller said. It's about the covenants. But the legacy of Nichols survives not just in the suburban aesthetic and the legal framework that produced it. It also resides in the American instinct to prioritize homeowners. The formulization of Nichols' covenants by the FHA and their promotion by real estate groups, Stevens wrote, led to a tendency for municipal planning departments to support the needs of individual property owners as a special interest group above the general population. It's understandable that homeowners would want to protect their housing investment and maintain their neighborhood aesthetic, although some use these instincts as a cover to prevent the arrival of more racially diverse or economically diverse neighbors. In any case, that power is often a luxury. As Miller told me, middle and lower income areas typically don't have covenants to regulate how residents want their neighborhoods to evolve. Thus, they face the most pressure from new development and cope with gentrification while wealthier areas stay the same. I thought about these various contradictions during a recent election in Kansas City, Missouri. Last November, more than 70% of voters approved a bond issue that would inject $50 million into an affordable housing trust fund. It was a massive success for several local politicians and the city's housing activists who helped amass citywide support. In some of Nichols Country Club district precincts, around 80% of voters approved the measure. But will much of the funding be granted for affordable housing in their neighborhoods? Doubtful. The area is zoned to largely forbid townhomes and apartments. And if Kansas City ever overturns single-family zoning, as cities like Minneapolis have, restrictive covenants in many country club district neighborhoods binding the land to single-family usage could still block affordable apartments, covenants that Nichols signed some 100 years ago. It might seem hyperbolic to trace the enduring appeal and exclusionary character of American suburbia to Nichols, but I believe that Nichols himself would agree with this view. In a profile published by the Brooklyn Daily Eagle in 1925, Nichols argued that he and a coterie of influential developers would impact the country for generations to come. Cities are handmade, he said, and the men who build the city today are responsible for the heritage posterity receives. That was the article titled, The Man Who Made the Suburbs White. J.C. Nichols pioneered racial covenants in Kansas City's surrounding enclaves. The country is still grappling with them. It was published at the Slate.com website on August 16th, 2023. I'm going to wrap up today's program with an excerpt from the book, Dark Days, Fugitive Essays. It was written by Roger Reeves, and I found this in the magazine, Poets and Writers. And it's September-slash-October 2023 edition. The title of this is Singing into the Silence of the State. What is the song that can be sung to soothe the fretting child in a bomb shelter? What is the song sung to disrupt a state-imposed curfew? What is the necessity of singing during catastrophe, whether state-created or virus-induced? Bleary-eyed. My head pandemic heavy, 
I watch protests erupt all over Austin, Texas, after the murder of George Floyd, a black man by Derek Chauvin, a white Minneapolis police officer. My daughter sits beside me, and I'm fumbling to find a poem to read to her, as I do every morning. A poem that will allow us both to enter the day. But the day appears much like the day before in this early part of the pandemic. She is huddled over a tablet, watching an Australian cartoon about a family of red and blue healers, and I am furiously trying to write on a small pad of paper. However, I'm distracted by the growing number of deaths in my neighbors' houses and in hospitals. How did we get here? And how long will we be here? The purple-blooming crepe myrtle tree tossed by the wind, its branches touching its trunk as if making sure it is still whole, still there in the ground, and in the city, the people burning, and the city burning too? What is the poem, the singing that can console and be with us while a city burns, and the people die in the burning, die on gurneys in the hallways of the hospital, die in despair because our politicians are too in love with their mouths, which they mistake for beauty? But their mouths are not beautiful things. They are the mouths of dogs in love, addicted to trash, pulling down the cans in the alley at night, running into the shadows after they've dined and swelled their bellies, leaving trash strewn everywhere. They leave, they hide. And we must be with this absence, be with this silence. How might we sing into this silence? That was an excerpt from the book Dark Days, Fugitive Essays, written by Roger Reeves. It was published in the September-October 2023 edition of Poets and Writers magazine. That's all the time we have this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader archives at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.